This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Today's report is over a nutrient program investigation tool that many farmers don't realize they can do, a crop tissue analysis. This test is done in most crops right before or during the reproductive stages to determine an after-the-fact look at plants' nutrients. When this test is taken, it is too late to improve the yield for that growing season, but it can be used to increase fertilizer efficiency for future crops and also to help undercover underlying issues in poorer yielding areas of the field. Tissue samples are usually tested for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which are often the main causes of fertility issues, but it's the secondary and micronutrient deficiencies that often remain hidden without physical symptoms but can be uncovered in tissue sampling. These include sulfur, zinc, fluoride, and iron. The last three, of copper, manganese, and molybdenum, can also be tested, but are usually only deficient in extreme pH situations. Tissue sampling is not unlike a doctor pulling a blood panel and comparing your results into what is considered a healthy range. Tissue samples can be taken at nearly any point in the growing season, but we have a better healthy range comparison records at certain growth stages. For wheat, one of these points is right now, when the wheat has headed to pollination but hasn't started pulling nutrients from the plant into the seeds yet. Collect 50 individual flag leaves, not the whole plant, and randomly around the area being tested. In corn, the first leaf below and opposite the ear is collected, and in soybeans, the top fully developed trifoliate leaf is collected at first pod set. If testing why one large area consistently does much worse than the rest of the field, it could be useful to take two samples, one in the bad area and one in the better rest of the field, so that way the two samples can be compared. Once sample, let the flag leaves dry out a little over the counter overnight. After that, put them into a paper bag or envelope, something that isn't plastic that would trap in the moisture, and then mail them off to the testing lab. Or you can always bring them in to the local extension office, and we'll help you fill out the paperwork and ship them off for you. A full diagnostic is $32, but we can usually narrow down the possible deficiencies for a cheaper test. There are times when a tissue sample can be misleading. If the plant is under drought stress, there might be plenty of nutrients in the soil, but the plant can't pull it in. A probable confounding issue would also be soil compaction, which limits the plant roots from getting to the nutrients that are available in the soil. It's also important to remember that pH is the controller chemistry in the soil. Deficient levels of iron and magnesium likely means that pH levels are too high, when often both of the nutrients have plenty quantities in the soil. pH can also affect phosphorus, potassium, and zinc to some degree as well. Late season soil tissue samples are yet another tool that farmer can use to hone in high yields or diagnostic issues. If you have any questions about plants tissue sampling, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Some people say things don't change. Well, poison hemlock is certainly one that hasn't lost its potency over time. Just like when it was used against Greek philosopher Socrates in 399 BC, it's just as potent now. However, it is becoming more common. 
This plant is invasive and highly toxic to both humans and livestock. Human deaths have occurred when people mistook poison hemlock for edible plants, like wild carrot. Their fern-like leaves and umbrella-like clusters of small white flowers are similar, but poison hemlock is set apart by its purple spots on smooth stems. Another interesting trait is the hollow stem, which can make a fun pea shooter, until it's no longer fun. Wild carrot, also known as Queen Anne's lace, has hairy stems and leaf bases with no purple spots. In this situation, purple on the stem indicates poison hemlock. Hemlock is a biennial plant in the carrot family. As one of the first plants to green up in the spring, it forms a rosette in its first year and then bolts and flowers in the second. It grows over four foot tall, and each plant can produce up to 38,000 seeds, and these seeds remain viable up to three years in the soil. Mowing is the most prominent way of expansion. We see it commonly on rose sides, fence rows, along creeks, and more and more in pastures and hayfields. It often begins as a small infestation and quickly expands. For that reason, it's a problem to tackle sooner rather than later. Cattle that ingest poisoned hemlock will start showing symptoms within two hours. Horses can show signs within 30 or 40 minutes. Symptoms include dilated pupils, reduced heart rate, trembling, nervousness, coma, and then fatal respiratory paralysis, all within a few short hours. The good news is livestock won't typically graze hemlock because of its unpalatability, but they will eat it if there's no other forage available, if it's the only thing that's green. It's more dangerous in hay as it's less identifiable to the animal and gets mixed in with the intentional harvest and can be unavoidable. Poison hemlock is most susceptible to herbicide when it's in the rosette stage. You can use picloram mixed with 2,4-D before it reaches 3 foot tall. Another option is aminopyrrolid metsulfuron before late May. Metsulfuron combined with chlorosulfuron can also be effective. Aminopyrrolid and Rinscore in late winter through early spring would also work if you're on top of a spray program early in the year. Be aware that toxic plants may become more palatable after spraying. Consider excluding animals from affected areas until poison hemlock has melted down. Be sure to read the label on all herbicides and follow grazing restrictions. For more information on weed control, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. When raising goats, it is important to know the common diseases that can affect goats and the signs and symptoms of these diseases to be able to effectively treat ones that show signs of sickness. Coccidiosis is a common disease affecting young kids. Older goats shed coccidia in the manure and infect the pens. As coccidia build up in pens or pastures, Infection in kids is increased. Rotating all the kids through one or two pens is not recommended. 
Signs of coccidiosis are diarrhea or pasty feces. Sometimes this will be on the kid's rump or legs. Loss of condition, general unthriftiness, and poor growth. Acute cases sometimes result in death with no noticeable symptoms beforehand. To help prevent coccidiosis in goats, the kids need as little stress as possible. They should be grouped by size in clean, well-ventilated inside pens or outside pens and rotated through pens to clean ground periodically. Eradication is difficult once the facilities are infected. Coccidiostatins added to the water or feed are necessary to treat and prevent coccidiosis. A management control program also includes strict sanitation to minimize the contamination of kids with coccidia from the manure of adults or infected kids. Chronic coccidiosis is one of the main causes of poor growth in kids. It is important to keep feed off the ground and keep feed troughs free of manure. Enterotoxemia, also called overeating disease, is common in both kids and adults. Clostridium perfringens type C or D, primarily type D, can be fatal. It is usually but not always associated with a change in quality and quantity of feed. In problem herds, vaccination every three to six months may be necessary compared to once yearly in other herds. Vaccination helps prevent acute death syndrome. In young kids, signs are watery diarrhea, depression, wobbly gait, and sometimes convulsions. In acute cases, kid temperature may reach 105 degrees. Milk yield drops abruptly if the animal is lactating. Contact your veterinarian immediately if you have a problem. Treatment involves administration of antitoxin and antibiotics, plus treatment of acidosis. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been Adavin Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. As mentioned previously, moisture and humidity create the optimal conditions for plants to be infected by disease. Nowhere in the landscape is this more damaging than with trees. Trees section off wounds in order to prevent decay from spreading inward, but only if the wound is clean. Wounds from mechanical damage like mowers, weed whackers, or wildlife will not kickstart the same healing response that pruning wounds will. These wounds provide the perfect entry point for decay that will slowly eat away at the wood of a tree and create potential hazards in the future. The most common type of mechanical damage to trees occurs at the base, where tree roots and the base of the trunk are exposed to mowers and weed whackers. In many cases, roots will also travel to the surface in search of oxygen due to overly moist soils. Mowers with low cutting heights may cut into roots, which damages not only the roots, but also potentially the mower blades. To avoid damaging potential surface roots, raise the cutting height of your mower deck. Mulch circles around the base of a tree will also reduce the chance of mower or weed whacker injury. However, it is also important to make sure that you do not pile the mulch too high around the base of the tree. This can also starve roots of oxygen, 
and roots in search of oxygen may wrap around the base of the tree, ultimately strangling it to death. Once decay enters into a tree, it is very hard to remove. If the decay is localized to a limb, removing the limb may prevent decay from migrating to the rest of the tree, but only if the limb is removed correctly. Decay inside the trunk or roots of a tree will ultimately kill the tree, particularly if the tree is a softwood like a Bradford pear or maple. Once the decay eats away at enough of the inner wood, the tree becomes a hazard to nearby property. Sometimes, a tree that looks fine on the outside will have extensive decay on the inside that necessitates removal. Only a thorough inspection of the tree for wounds will determine the likelihood of decay as a cause of tree symptoms. Woodpeckers and sapsuckers can also create many small wounds for disease to enter. You will see small holes in a circle around the outside bark of a tree, usually six to 12 inches apart. Woodpeckers search inside the bark for insects, while sapsuckers will eat the sugary sap of the tree. In trees with more sap, this can cause a black mold to grow on the bark that sap runs down. This is only cosmetic, but does serve as an indication of damage that should be controlled. Sound decoys and alternative food sources are the two best ways to keep woodpeckers and sapsuckers away from your trees. Food sources like suet are the best option for keeping woodpeckers happy and your trees healthy at the same time. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at the Girard Extension Office at 620-724-8233 or at my email address jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.